All right. Nahum uh, is, is an interesting book. In fact, this book is oftentimes uh, really controversial. Uh, folks that uh, uh, will read it sometimes are very offended by it because it's one of those few books in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a prophet. He doesn't tell us to do anything. It's not a book of redemption. It's not a book that he says, okay, you're doing this wrong, now turn and do this right. It doesn't have that. It just has wrath. And it makes us uncomfortable. And, and in order to understand the message of this, which is actually a very powerful, uplifting message for us, we're going to have to really get into the book to understand why. What is he saying? But let me set the stage to help kind of get some context as to what, what Nahum's talking about. Uh, Nahum lived at a time when it was tough to be a follower of God, when things were hard. When, when the enemies of God seemed to be getting their way and advancing on every single front. When, when you were ridiculed and persecuted and marginalized because of faith. That's when Nahum preaches. And you know what? Nahum wasn't alone in this. Uh, if you think back, I mean, just last year we did this uh, series on Noah. And then we did the second series on Noah and then the third one. Right? Times were hard. Or we think about Abraham. It wasn't easy to be a follower of God. Or think about David. It wasn't always simple to follow God, especially when he's standing there as a kid because everyone around him was too afraid to go attack the giant. And there are times when it's hard to be a follower. How about Joseph? Right? He does the right thing and gets sold into slavery. Well, he didn't do the right thing to get sold into slavery. I mean, he was being punk. He got sold into slavery then. But then... Then he does the right thing. And he gets put in a jail. And he has all these bad things that happen to him. But then ultimately God comes through. I mean, it's hard. Hard to be a person of faith. We're talking about Stephen. At the beginning of the church, here's, here's a man who was faithful and loved people and, and was doing the work of making sure widows were fed. That's a pretty PC job. And yet, he was the first martyr. It's, sometimes it's hard to be a believer. How about John, the Apostle John? And to see every one of his friends, followers of Jesus, that all the disciples murdered because of their faith. And to be the last one. And then to be thrown out on some island to be forgotten about because of his faith. You know, sometimes it's hard to walk with God. And when society and the world seems to be winning, when the enemies of God are closing in and seem to advance on every single side, sometimes as believers you have to start asking, it's just natural to say, where is God? What good is his protection? We say he's a strong refuge in times of trouble. What good is it if you're getting your clock cleaned all the time? Is God ever going to stand up and defend his people? Is he ever going to help us? Is God really all powerful or are these just words that we're trusting in? Is God really going to just let the wicked win? I don't know if you've asked yourselves those questions, but I think at some point in our lives, every Christian needs to because the reality, it's never been easy to be a believer. Uh, we've, as humans, have declared a war on God ever since the beginning. And we have to ask ourselves, what do we do when times are hard? How is God's power worthwhile? What is God up to? And it was in the midst of this this difficult question, this, this, this turmoil of the soul of the nation of, of Judah, that God sends the prophet Nahum. Now, the, very, the book begins 
this is. It's an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, obviously, times since we don't know much about these things, you kind of slide through that. Let me help you with some things that I found, which was really interesting. The first is an oracle. Oracle really means burden in Hebrew. This is a heavy word. And there are very few oracles given by the prophets in the Old Testament. God doesn't send these very often, but every time he brings one, it says this. He's going to crush his enemies. That's what the word oracle means. This is a heavy word. And it concerns Nineveh. And we'll talk about in a minute how big of a deal this was. Nineveh is a superpower. Nineveh was the, the standing up, we are the enemy of God and proud of it people. These were the ones that were crushing God's people and threatened to destroy them entirely. And it's a book. Unlike most of the prophets that started out as an oral revelation, this one started out as a, as a book. God didn't choose a preacher. He chose a poet. And you read the book of, of Nahum, and man, this guy is good. He is a good writer, and he describes things in, in, with such detail. And it tells you something about what God wanted his people to see. You see, when he recorded it right from the beginning, God was saying to his people, there is permanence to this message right from the start. It's important that we get it right, that we understand it. And so he delivered it to his people in writing. And it was written by a guy named Nahum, which name means comforter, right, or compassion. He's Mr. Compassion from Elkosh, which is kind of ironic when you read his message. Now, where is Elkosh? I don't know. We don't. It, there's some ideas. It could be up right near Assyria on, on the Tigris River, right up the road, which means that uh, Nahum could have been a captive brought to Assyria because there was a little town um, that, that had a name like that that could have been right outside of Jerusalem, which means that he would have been uh, there when Jerusalem was uh, under siege by, by the Assyrians and, and would have suffered some of those things. So he could have been there, but a, refu a refugee could have been there. Or it could be Capernaum. Um, Capernaum, the name actually means town of Nahum which is kind of cool. So somewhere in there, and we see Jesus did a lot of ministry there, but the reality is it doesn't matter where he was from. It matters what he says. And so uh, here, here's what we have. The time frame that he writes between 663 and 612. This is how we know that. And you're like, ah, numbers. These numbers matter. 663 is when the powerful city of Thebes in Egypt fell to the Assyrians. And Nahum writes about this, and we'll get to that, and it's pretty amazing. Okay? 612 is when another powerful city, uh, Nineveh, falls to the Babylonians. And he prophesies that in his book. So it's a sandwiched in between there, between those two, those two powerful falls. Now, most scholars believe this book was written around 650, which some crazy things were happening in 650. Uh, and basically, that was the golden age of the Assyrian uh, kingdom. So the audience was Judah. That's the southern kingdom. God doesn't even write this to, to the Assyrians. He doesn't send this message to Nineveh like he sent uh, Jonah to Nineveh. He writes this to to the southern kingdom, which helps us interpret its meaning. Now, the historical background, this is a century after God sent them Noah, or, or Jonah. God sent Noah a long time before that. <laughs> Jonah. Jonah, the guy gets swallowed by the fish, gets spit up, goes there, and he prophesies repentance for the city. And after then, Assyria turns to God. Not only are they not destroyed, but they have a, basically a century of just solid victories. 
And we're going to show you a map in just a minute. And you can see how amazing it is. It's just coincidence that they turn to God and all of a sudden, like, they expand like crazy. Um, Assyria was the world superpower. There was no one on earth that dared challenge Assyria at this time. They were amazing. And Israel, the northern kingdom, had already fallen to Assyria. In fact, God sent them Jonah in the year, what, 725? And in 722, the faithless northern kingdom falls to the repentant Assyria. Isn't that awesome? Well, here we go. Here's a cool map because I promised it and I like maps. See that big bright line? That's the Assyrian Empire at the time of Nahum. Look how massive that is. So if you if, uh, understand, here's the Red Sea. And here's the Persian Gulf. You got an idea. Sinai Peninsula down here. You got Africa. Right? This little blob there is, is Judah. Okay? The southern kingdom. Northern kingdom's already gone. You see how tiny God's people look compared to the massive Assyrian Empire? Now, something else to notice here. Uh, Nineveh was right here on the Tigris River, right there. Uh, Mosul is on the other side of that river. It helped them find it eventually uh, when they actually found it. Something else to point out here, look where Babylon is. It's inside the lines. It's underneath the Assyrian rule. We'll come back to that matters. It's an important thing. But for a hundred years, the Assyrians waged war with everyone that was around them, and they won. And they became really, really wealthy. Now, if you look at their location, look at this. You have wealth from Africa. Where does it flow? Into the Assyrian Empire. You have wealth from Europe. Where does it flow? Assyrian Empire. You have wealth from Asia. Where does it flow? The Assyrian Empire. It was the center of the world. It had the best schools. It had all the money. It had, in fact, by the time Nahum got there, the city of Assyria, or, or Nineveh, was 30 miles long by 10 miles deep. Can you imagine? Like, like Estes Park? We're like, what, a mile and a half? 30 miles of progress. And it wasn't just 30 miles that just spread about. It was ordered and structured. There was walls, that massive thick walls, super tall. And they had these fortresses and towers that were around it and these huge gates that were intimidating and, and thought to be unbreachable. It was, uh, it was a jewel and it was a powerhouse. It, this city at the capital was unlike what most people in the world had ever seen before. Uh, those who would go into it would be awestruck by the power and the might of, of the Assyrians when they would walk into Nineveh. And so God has this, this nation and as they're growing for a hundred years, but what happens oftentimes when we reach prosperity and things get easy and, and we get wealthy and we have a lot of power? Pride. Pride comes in, doesn't it? And the, and the Assyrians, the, even though they repented under Jonah, they be, started becoming very prideful. Very prideful. Thought that they should be the ones that everybody worshipped. Thought they should be the ones that everyone should bow down to. They started forgetting about God and they said, we have all the money, we have all the power, we're going to do whatever we want. And then we've uncovered the library so we get some inner workings as to what happened in, in Nineveh. And what they would do is they would think about who's got what they want. And they would sit there and they would scheme up a way to make it look like they were justified in attacking the people that they had what they wanted. They would say, oh, you wronged us, so we're going to attack you. It's not unlike what's happening in the Ukraine, right? Where 
Russia went down and all that. That's very similar. It's those types of things happen. This is how uh, the Assyrians worked. And so what they would do is they would use uh, deception and violence to get what they want. And they grew massively and they become very, very violent. In fact, they became so violent uh, that they were, they, were, um, they were feared and hated by everyone around them. They had people that were their allies only because they knew if we weren't your ally, you would kill us. And so this is, this is uh, Nineveh. Now, the book goes like this. There's a lot of vengeance in this book, by the way, so we'll talk about that. The outline is, is three chapters, which talk about basically three movements in the book. The first one is the verdict of vengeance. This is God saying, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Then, the second one is the vision of vengeance. God gives Nahum a vision. He gets to see it, what's going to happen. And God describes what happens, how Nineveh is going to fall in an, an incredible detail. I mean, just incredible detail. And he did that so the people would... When they saw this, would know the people of God would know that it wasn't just a fluke that Nineveh fell. The third thing is it's a vindication of vengeance. God describes why Nineveh is going to fall. He's not capricious, and so he's talking about this is exactly what they've done. This is why they're going to fall. The purpose of the book is threefold. The first one is console God's people. Remember the name of the book, Nahum, and it means comfort, right, or consolation. Now. I was going to say the book's theme is consolation, but most of us have watched game shows in the past, and what do you get when you lose? Consolation prize. This is not that. (laughs) Right? This is, you're getting what you've already won, and now everybody finally gets to see that you did. So we chose the word vindication for the purpose, but it's God's consoling his people. This was not a book to to Nineveh. It's not a book of repentance. It's a book... Uh, that God's consoling his people. However, it is a pronouncement of God's judgment on Nineveh. There is nothing that, that uh, Syria can do at this point. It's just basically said it's done, it's going to happen, and it happened. Uh, it's also a prophecy of Assyria's fall. He tells exactly how it's going to happen. So the world would know that God did this, and it wasn't just the workings of, of man. And so uh, that's how it, it themes out. So let's get into uh, the first movement is the verdict of vengeance. And it begins like this. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes vengeance on all those oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Well, that's an uplifting passage. But it sets the theme for the book. And I think a lot of times we get uncomfortable with God's rage. Right? We, we don't like books like this because what God is a jealous God? That's so not good. In fact, Oprah Winfrey wrote one time when she was growing up in a little Baptist church that her pastor dared preach that God is a jealous God and that's what turned her away from the faith. But God is a jealous God. It is. He cares very much what we do and how we believe and where our hearts are at. And his jealousy is like this, and it's a right kind of jealousy. I, I have a wife. I don't want her to love some other guy. I don't. And you know what? She's kind of jealous about me too. She would be a little upset if I brought home a mistress. <laughs> it's just the way that it works. And we would say that's okay. God made us. He cares about us. He wants our hearts. He wants to love us. He's jealous and he's filled his vengeance as this, that when we go out and we do horrible things, it makes him mad. Doesn't it make you a little upset, right, when, when you see wrongs in this world? Like when, when you saw what happened with the, or the, the, uh, oh, the Planned Parenthood this week, didn't it make you a little upset? 
Or when you go, turn on the TV and you see those videos of people that are starving in these countries and yet we've got refrigerators filled with food and you're like, doesn't that make you mad that, that people are suffering? Or, or you turn on and you see what's happening over in the Middle East and, and, and all the people that are being killed by a violent and horrible movement and regime. Doesn't that make you upset when you hear the stories of that? Or if you know somebody has faced injustice or you've faced it yourself, doesn't that make you mad? Isn't that four-year-old inside of you cross your arms and say, not fair, not okay? If we understand that wrong is wrong and it makes us mad, how much more so God who is righteousness himself? In fact, I think it's, it's comforting to know that God cares about what is right. That the wickedness that happens on the earth actually affects him. That he's not up there just saying, meh, yeah, those drug dealers just slaughter that entire village, but who cares? I don't care. I'm glad that God is not just from a distance. God cares very deeply and he's a God with vengeance and rage and he does something about the wrongs in this world. And it says that his, his rage continues against his enemies. He is not a God to be trifled with. And yes, he's a God of love and we preach that. And he's a God of grace, which is amazing. He gave us Jesus and Jesus faced his wrath on our behalf so we wouldn't have to. But let's not forget that God is still a God of wrath. We don't toy with Him. We don't mess with Him. We don't just bring around false gods into our lives and, and, and think that it's going to somehow be okay with Him. We can't just treat other people horribly and do all kinds of violence and think that somehow God's fine with it. God is a powerful and just God. And we need to have this, this understanding of His sovereignty and His power. Assyria forgot that and was going to soon be reminded. God starts off with this. He shows himself as an offended sovereign. Understand Assyria was an empire. They were a sovereign nation that actually took over other nations, right? And so how they would write their things is very much how God uses Nahum to write uh, what his, his basically his, uh, his verdict of war. And this is exactly how the Assyrians would do it. And God is showing them, listen, I am the real sovereign. I am the one who is actually powerful, and you should listen up. And he starts off with this. He says, the Lord is slow to get angry. He starts off saying, listen, I'm not unjust in this. He's not capricious and he's not hot-headed. God is a God of vengeance and he's a God of rage at the right things to be angry at. But he's not just, oh, I'm mad and just wipes us off the face of the planet. He's measured. He's, he's restrained. And when he lets his, his fists fly, he lets them fly for a reason. He's a good leader. He is a wise sovereign. He says this, but his power is great. Don't forget this. God has powerful. We call him God Almighty for a reason. And he's not going to let the guilty go unpunished. God cares about right and wrong. He cares about justice. And he is the one that will defend it. He is a powerful sovereign. But Nineveh, who should know this, forgot. And they acted wrong and they committed violence and they did all kinds of horrible things to the people around them. And so God writes to them just like, just like the Assyrians would write to the nations around them when they were concocting reasons to attack them. God just says, this is the real reason why you're being attacked. Why are you scheming against me? Says the Lord. You say, well, how on earth are they scheming against him? Were there any documents that say that they were going against the God of, of, of Israelites? No. They were scheming against God because they were scheming against his people. They had already destroyed the northern kingdom, even though God sent them a prophet from there. 
recently. Like, no, and, they, and then they attack them and destroy them. And then what do they do? They go down and attack the southern kingdom too. And then they oppress God's people. And they tell God's people to put up shrines and temples and things in their temples to, to their foreign gods. I mean, and they treated God's people with contempt. And they schemed against God's people. And God says, if you schemed against them, you schemed against me. See, God wasn't kidding when he said he's close to those who trust in him. God cares what happens to his children. And he takes it personally when the world wrongs us. I find some comfort in that. He says, why are you scheming against the Lord? I like this. He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. They picked the wrong fight. Right? It's like a prize fighter coming out, you know, to, you know, face down the sixth grade bully. It's like, I'm just, I'm just going to hit once. It's not even hard. Like, boom, boom, done. That's it. That's all it's going to be. And that's what God says it's going to be. They're not even, they're not a contender. And God was going to show them their destruction would be swift, decisive, and devastating. And it would be over quickly. God's not just a, an, an offended sovereign, though. He's this, too. He is his people's vindicator. His people were put down. They were, they were oppressed. The laws were written against them. They were shut down because of their faith. And God says this, The Lord is good, a strong refuge to time, um, when trouble comes. And he is close to those who trust in him. He's going to take care of his people. And you know what? Israel's still around. Now, they went through some difficult times. They didn't get to keep their own nation for a while, but they're still very much around. God's people are still here. The faith is still here. We still talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where is Assyria? Can you even name their gods? No, you can't because they've been forgotten. Because boom, one punch, they're gone. But God vindicated his people. And he talks about this. And he says uh, in in writing that sounds very similar to what Isaiah would write, very similar to what we read in in, in Romans later on, it says, uh, look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. How beautiful are the feet of those that have good news, huh? Sounds familiar. Because he's bringing a message of peace. He's talking about the destruction of, of Nineveh. And he's saying, this is good news. And the people would see it as such. Because when you are underneath the Assyrians... If you had a religious revival in your country, they would see that as treason. Somehow that you're trying to get your nation and all your gods to go against their gods, and they would come in and destroy you. And so it was very hard to to practice the faith. And good news is going to come, and the prophet sees it coming, and he says, so this guy's going to come over that mountain. He's going to say, you're not going to believe what happened. Nineveh's gone. And what are the people supposed to do with this? Well, God's people are supposed to do something amazing, which is different than what they actually did, is they're supposed to worship him. They're supposed to go back to and they're supposed to practice their their faith with freedom. God was going to deliver them from this yoke so they could return to their God and practice their faith without fear. That's what it says. Celebrate your festivals. Fulfill your vows. Why? Because your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. Now understand when this was written how ridiculous that would have sounded. Assyria was this massive, massive... their, Their capital city, 30 miles by 10 miles. They had... Everything. They had the military, the economy, the politics. They had everything. To say they're going to be gone? What? The, 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 Judah, the people in Judah would be like, you are crazy. I mean, we like your message, but you're crazy. This is not going to happen. That is, a, that is straight up impossible. But God says, I will vindicate my people. And that's how he reveals himself in the first chapter. 
The second chapter goes in this. There's a vision of vengeance, and God gives Nahum that vision. He gets to picture it and some crazy details as to what's going to happen. Three-quarters of the book of Nahum are predictive prophecies, things that hadn't happened yet. And it tells with some detail as to what's going to happen. And the things happen, which is really fun. First, it says that your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. That kind of sums up. That's how he starts the whole thing. So bad news for you. He doesn't say, repent or your enemy is going to crush you. No, they've already crossed the line. Your enemy is coming to crush you. And this is what's going to happen. Um, and I love this, that passage you kept reading on. It says, so man your ramparts, watch the roads, repair your defenses, call out your forces. Go ahead, try to brace yourself for God. He's going to destroy you. In fact, God was almost challenging them. Bring out your best. Come on. And he's going to destroy them at their strength. And that's exactly what he does. So here's how we see there's going to be several prophecies of things that were going to happen in Nineveh's fall. The first one is that they were going to be attacked by the Babylonians. Remember where Babylon was? inside of Assyria, that's what made it so ridiculous. That's like us saying Florida is going to you know, overcome the country, right? They were there. They were part of that same nation. Why would they attack? And not only that, they're not nearly as strong as the whole nation. The Babylonians are going to attack us? Yeah, whatever. But how does he describe it? The Babylonians, had their, their armies wore a lot of red. They loved red as they should have, because it's a cool color. And so this says their shields flash red in the sunlight. Well, the Babylonians were known. They had these massive shields that were red. They had red, uh, uh, their, their troops wore these really awesome crimson red um, um, uh, uniforms. And he describes it. This is the army that's going to come against you. The Medes also liked red a little bit too. They had a lot of uh, war horses and things like this. It turns out that the Babylonians and the Medes, who were outside of the empire, they joined together, and that's how uh, Nineveh fell. But he tells them that they're going to be attacked by the Babylonians. second thing that's going to happen is he says this, is that your walls are going to be breached by chariots. It's going to be like a freeway going through your massive, your massive defenses, which would be ridiculous if you thought about it in the time. Like, you're not going to just get one or two chariots through. You're going to have, like, an entire, like, massive army of chariots are going to be able to get through these walls. And if you saw these walls and the defenses that were on these walls, you would say, no way. That cannot happen. Maybe if, I mean, if you've got like a little crack in the wall, you can maybe squeeze through a chariot. That would be, that'd be something. And usually what would happen if they breached a wall, you'd get like a section that might fall down, right? And, the, and it would be too rough for the, for the chariots to ride through. And so the troops would kind of storm through the, the breaches in the wall. But to say that the chariots are going to rush through the streets, it's like they cleared themselves a path. I mean, that, that they're going to so decimate the, the, the defenses of Assyria that you'll be able to just, it's like freeway traffic. And it talks about this, like these chariots are just zipping around the city, just bringing all kinds of death and destruction and fire and all kinds of fun stuff. It says that's what it's going to be. And not only are your walls going to be breached and so much that chariots can rush through, but this, there are going to be siege towers that are going to be brought up against you. This would have been a very... Uh, it's such an interesting uh, prediction because it was so unlikely. The Assyrians mastered, uh, were one of the first uh, nations to master the, the breach, uh, the, the siege tower. And the reason was setting up a siege tower is hard to do uh, because you're setting up against a wall. And if you're standing next to a wall, people are above you on the wall who don't like you. And they drop things on your head and kill you. And so it's not a safe job. And it makes it very difficult to build something. And so the Assyrians built a plan how to do this and they created these shields that looked like roofs kind of over the top of them and then they would put these these posts down so then people would drop these stuff on it and it would keep their troops safe and then they'd be able to raise these shields as they raised the the siege towers it was really a fascinating thing but the Assyrians were starting to pioneer this this was like 
really high-tech stuff. No one else in the world had the technology to do this. And to say that your own walls are going to be breached this way? Syrians would be like, no, that can't happen. But God said it would. And not only that, this is crazy too. It says you're going to be damaged by a flood. So the river gates can be opened and the palace melts away. Not only uh, is it going to, you're going to flood and your gates can be opened because of a flood, but the palace, which is like the White House, right? You're going to watch it crumble. Like the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they don't get the pleasure of destroying your palace. God's going to destroy the palace. And you remember when the flood, when we saw the waters go through and it wiped out the foundations of the buildings and the buildings would just kind of dissolve and crash? That's what God said was going to happen to their palace, the king's palace. And not only that, he says this, your city is going to be emptied and abandoned. It says Nineveh is like a leaking water reservoir. The people are slipping away. Stop, stop, someone shouts, but no one even looks back. It's a city that's massive. And to think that no one, zero people will be there. Eventually, this city is going to have no one there. Can you imagine, like, if I said to you, uh, God's going to judge New York, and no one's going to go to New York City anymore. Like, it's going to be empty. The entire city is going to be empty. This is the thought of that's ridiculous. You think, well, sure, there's going to be some holdouts. Some people will be there, right? Nobody. I mean, this is a massive city. To say it would be empty is crazy. But it's what God said was going to happen. And not only that, it's going to be completely plundered. Remember, this was a city that stored the vast wealth of, of the world. It came in from Asia and from Europe and from Africa. It was, it was amazing. And God says that all this wealth is going to go away. And if you walk into Assyria and you saw its vast wealth, you'll say, there's no way. This is, how could you even possibly carry this away? But God said it would be. He said, soon the city will be plundered, emptied and ruined. And there's one of those times that, uh, that the author's um, really cool uh, writing kind of comes into place. And he uses a, uh, some words that sound the same to describe this. And if I was going to um, translate it, it's basically saying the city is... The city is desolated, the city is devastated, the city is destroyed. That's kind of what he's saying. He turns it into like a little poem, which I think is kind of cool. And that's what's going to happen. Now here's what we find that happens is according to ancient historians, Nineveh was attacked by the Babylonians and the Medes, just like God said they were going to be. And you know what? Their walls were breached and destroyed, so much so that the entire chariot's armies could go through, and that's how they set the city on fire, because it's a lot of city to set on fire, and it was burned, uh, which is crazy. In fact, it was burned so hot that the, that the stone gods that they had built up there cracked. And you can imagine the heat that was from that. It is so... Move that down. I'm so sorry. There we go. Okay. Now, not only that, uh, it was, there was a flood. When the city was under the siege and the Babylonians were around it and, and all this, uh, there were siege towers that were set up and they were having a hard time getting those things set up and a flood comes through and uh, the Tigris River has a historical flood, just happens to be right then. And it destroys some of the gates. And the gates open up and guess what? The chariots storm the city. Well, well now you've got an enemy in the city. It's pretty hard to man the ramparts, isn't it? So they build these siege towers because it's a big city and they storm it from all these different directions. And uh, what happens is the river floods and it goes all the way up to the king's palace. And the king's palace is recorded by the, the, uh, the historians that says it looks like it melted. So cool! <laughs> Not only that, the, so their, their capital falls. God breaches the walls. The people come in. The, the siege towers are set. Uh, it was emptied. So emptied that no one lived there. A city 30 by 10 miles has no one left in it. 
So much so that no one was left. And after the city fell, 400 years later, some Greek historians went there because they heard this was like a legend and they were like looking at the legend. They go to the place where the people said the city was there. It wasn't there. It was all covered up. And they said that even the name of the city had been completely forgotten. Not even like a little sediment was left. Nothing. It was gone. And it says uh, all of its, its wealth was plundered, and it certainly was. Uh, the Babylonians carried off huge amounts of wealth, which helped set up their, their kingdom and their empire. And uh, God's word was kept in the year 612, just like he said it would be. As God says, he has this vision that, uh, that they're going to, that Nineveh's going to be destroyed. He also tells us in this chapter another vision, and it's this, that Judah is going to be vindicated. He said, even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will restore its honor. God's people, remember, they had this big, bad Assyria all around them, and they were being picked on and persecuted, and God says, I'm going to vindicate you. I'm going to destroy them, but you're going to have your honor restored. Uh, if you're a, a captured people, we live in the United States. We're a very wealthy, powerful nation. We have no concept of this. But if you're a people that lives under captivity, and you pay huge tithes and taxes and and tributes to these other countries so they can oppress you, I think you'd have a little better understanding of how crazy that must have sounded or how amazing it would be to, to be freed from that level of, of uh, being marginalized and, and pushed down. God's going to redeem them. But another part of it that says this is he's also going to restore them. He's not just going to vindicate them. We have to bring them back. He says your vine has been stripped by its branches, but he, God, will restore your splendor. Everything that Assyria took away, God's going to bring back, so don't worry about it. Uh, God is enough not just to bring Assyria down, which would be awesome, but he's loving enough he's going to vindicate his people and he's going to restore them. Now, chapter 3 is this thing. It's the vindication of vengeance. Why is this happening? And God starts that chapter with basically a very uh, good explanation of the country. It says, What sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Nineveh grew, Assyria grew by this, by deception. They would conspire ways to get other people to help them attack other nations so they could get what they wanted. Lies, deception, and they used a massive amount of violence. And so they said, this is, what, uh, this is why you're going to be destroyed. And because they grew wealthy through deception and violence, they were going to be destroyed with deception and violence. It says uh, in verse 3, it says, There will be countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people will stumble over them. One of the most graphic passages in all of Scripture. They say the level of violence that they pursued, they will also be destroyed by violence. Jesus talked about this. I remember when he tells Peter to put away his sword. All right, Peter tries to defend Jesus, takes the sword out, chops the ear off of the high priest. Jesus puts it back on, or serving the high priest. And, and uh, Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. Because... What? Those who live by the sword die by the sword. It's a principle. And that's the way this world works. We try to, we try to, to end wars by fighting wars. How stupid is that? But that's what we do. And we try to win with violence and things. And God says, if you do that route, if you live with violence, that's going to be your end. You're going to die with violence. And God is true to his word. He is just. He is consistent. And he said... Nineveh, you have been the most violent of all nations. You will end most violently, unlike any nation. And they did. Not only that, uh, he talks to them about how they were unfaithful, like they were a prostitute. He says, all this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, the mistress of deadly charms, enticed nations with her beauty. Nineveh was wealthy. 
and other countries wanted to be part of that. And Nineveh was powerful, and other countries wanted to be part of that. They wanted to get into that economy. They wanted to start trade agreements and things like this. And so Nineveh was a beautiful place, attractive to have as an ally. And so Nineveh would be like, okay, sure, we would love to have you as an ally. But as soon as she let you in, bad things would happen. Ahaz did this. Uh, he, he opened up the doors to Nineveh and to the northern kingdom. And he said, this is great. And he goes up there and says, we'd like to do some trade recorded in Chronicles. And here's what happens. Is, uh, Nineveh's like, that's awesome. But what we want you to do is we want you to set up a, a, a shrine to our God in your temple. And that's exactly what he has done. And that's what they did. And as soon as you opened the door to them, then what they would do is eventually, when they wanted what you had, they would conspire a way to make them look like you were conspiring against them so they could attack you. And that's what they did, and that's how they grew big. You see, they were like prostitutes. They promised you everything, and they looked beautiful and good, but they didn't love. They were just going to rip, uh, rip the, the nations off, and it's exactly what they did. And so God says they acted like a prostitute. He was going to treat them like one. And so he says in verse 5, he says, And now I will lift your skirts then and show the earth your nakedness and your shame. I'm going to humiliate you. I'm going to strip away your army. I'm going to strip away your wealth. I'm going to strip away all those things that you thought made you so beautiful. And the world's going to see you for what you really are. But then God's vengeance kicks in. And he says in the next passage, Therefore, or he says, I will cover you with filth and show the world how vile you really are. And it's the picture, this mental picture of not just stripping this harlot and the public spirit so that she could be mocked and, 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 and humiliated for, for who she is, but then just to throw sewage on her. So that everyone would look at her and say, oh, just she is revolting. And God said, that's exactly what I'm going to do to you, Nineveh, because that's how you've treated others. And it says, all who see you will shrink back and say, Nineveh lies in ruins. And then there's this wonderful question that he asks, so where are the mourners? Does anyone even regret your destruction? No one loved Nineveh. All of the nations around her, the Medes, the Greeks, the Egyptians, everyone that was around her hated her. They all wanted her gone. And when Nineveh fell, there were parties throughout the entire empire. It was like when you watch the, the Return of the Jedi, right? And, and, and everybody's happy and they tear down the statues of Darth Vader and all that. Like, everyone's happy the empire fell. That's what happened when Nineveh fell. It was good times. My sermon disappears again. So, uh, only that. But he says this. Uh, Nineveh said, we're too powerful to fall. People of Israel would say, or Judah would say, how is this even possible? It's great that, God, you're going to do this, but it's Nineveh. You've seen how huge it is? And God reminds them of Thebes. Remember that little country or that little, that little city way down there? Who Thebes had not fallen in a thousand years. Thebes was on a river that, and it had uh, the river surrounded on three sides. You couldn't even bring siege towers against it. Thebes was wealthy and Thebes, unlike Nineveh, was surrounded by really powerful allies who wanted to see it succeed. Everyone in the, in the ancient world looked at Thebes and said, that city is safe. A thousand years, over 200 conquests against Thebes and no one ever breached the walls. And yet, Nineveh came down, and it turns out that Manasseh, who was a wicked, wicked king, son of Josiah, he helps, right? Uh, uh, Father Josiah, he comes down, and they, uh, he helps them, and they go down into Thebes. In fact, they go through the city of Memphis, which is above it, which was like the, the military headquarters for the Egyptian armies, which is a massive, <laughs> it was no small task to do that. 
And Assyria goes down and wipes out Thebes, who was more powerful, who was safer, who had better defenses. And God says, if I can wipe out Thebes, you can, if Thebes can be wiped out, uh, you, should, you should take note because uh, you're not impenetrable. And they weren't. But then he goes on and he talks about locusts. Why? Because judgment. I don't know. Just every time there's judgment, you do locusts. Locust judgment, there you go. <laughs> so, but he brings out these ideas with, with judgment, with these locusts. And the first thing he says is, listen, you, you're going to have... You know, if locusts come in and they strip your fields dry and you can't defend against them, that's what the attack's going to be like. It doesn't matter how you try to defend yourself, you're not going to be able to. You're going to be done. Not only are your, defend- or your attackers going to be like uh, locusts, but even if your troops are like locusts in their ability to multiply, because they're insects and they grow fast, right? It says even if your army could just multiply, it still wouldn't be enough. And then he goes on to say, oh, and, and, uh, and in your economy, you see, uh, like locusts would, would go onto a field they would like a big cloud, and then there'd be like millions of locusts there, and that's all you would see is just like all this busyness as locusts were doing their stuff. That's what it looked like in, in Nineveh when they looked out into the public square, and there was all this economy going on, all this commerce, and they had this powerful economy. And so the, the people from Nineveh would say, you can't take us, we're too wealthy, we're too important. We've got all this economy. And God says, you know what, your merchants, your economy's going to be like a locust. It looks like they're there forever, but they fly off in an instant, and they leave you with nothing. That's what it's going to be like. And more than that, at the very end, it says, um, oh, and, and your, your wise officials, your government that you think you can help and protect you, they're going to be like locusts too. And locusts are like bugs, right? That's what they are. So on a cold day, what do locusts do? They sit in the bushes and they freeze. And they, like most bugs, they don't move. And it says it's like that. When this comes in, your leaders, your government's going to be frozen. It's going to be, it's not going to do anything. But then when the heat of the battle goes in, like the heat of the day comes on, those, your leaders are going to be like locusts. They're not going to stick around. They're going to get out of there. And that's what happens. Like if you see locusts on a bush and the day gets hot, they don't stick around. They're gone. So that's what your government's going to be like. So basically he says, your size isn't going to help you. You think you're impenetrable because of your size? Your taxes are coming like locusts. Your military is not going to save you. Right? It's, not, it's never going to be big enough and powerful enough to, to beat God. How about this? Your economy? Your economy won't save you. It's going to disappear in an instant. It's going to leave you with nothing. How about your government? You think your government's so great? It's not going to help you. As soon as you need it, it's going to be frozen and then it's going to disappear. It's not going to help you. And then he addresses, he ends the book with a direct address to the king of Assyria. And he says this, and the picture is pretty much of a guy, an emperor, sitting in the ruins, the rubble of his kingdom. And he sits there and he looks around and all he can see is destruction, but none of his people. Just death and destruction. And he's sitting there, once powerful, now with nothing. And he says to him, your shepherds are asleep. Basically, he says, your officials, they're all dead. Your people are scattered. They're over the mountains. You're never going to be their king again. They're already gone. They're already taken into captivity. And he says, you're never going to recover from this. Assyria will never rise again. And the concept of this in 650, like when this was written, it's just phenomenal. It'd be like somebody saying, you know, well, really to us today. You're going to be gone, and with one battle, you're going to be done, and you're never going to rise again. People won't even remember the United States ever existed. That's what he's saying. And he says, your destruction will be celebrated, not mourned. The people of the world who hear that you've fallen, it's not like anybody's going to be sad about it. I think that's like the biggest insult of all. Like, you're gone. It's like if you died and had a funeral and then people threw a party. He's like, woohoo, they're dead. Like uh, the Wicked Witch. It was just like that. Well, it happened. It happened just as God said it would happen. In 612, they were gone. In 639, several years before that, 
God, uh, he, he was good. He, he allowed this, this uh, king named Josiah, a young man, to come into power in Judah. Now, his grandfather, Manasseh, was a wicked guy who was under the thumb of the Assyrian Empire. And then he had a son who was also wicked, and he was assassinated. Now you have young Josiah who finds the law, and there's religious revival that happens in the nation. In 612, Nineveh is then sacked by the Babylonians and the Medes. God delivers his people while Josiah is king. And uh, what did the people do? They fulfilled their vows. They celebrate their things because they remember what they were, because now they found the Bible, which was really cool. In 605, the remnants of the, of the Assyrian army, which then fled up, they, uh, they gathered all of the rest of their forces, and, the, and they talked to the Egyptians into joining them. And the Egyptians come up the coast, and they go through, and Josiah brings out an army to end so the Egyptians wouldn't do that, and it was a bad idea because Josiah died in that battle. And then uh, the, the Egyptians go up and join in with, with the Assyrians, with the really strange, uh, their allies, and they go to fight against the Babylonians, and they are destroyed in the Battle of Karshemesh which is one of the most biggest um, battles in the ancient world, and that's what destroyed the Assyrian army. They were so destroyed that the name Assyria disappeared from, from the world's knowledge. Like, like Nineveh was gone. No one even knew about them. In fact, believers for a long time were, were criticized by travelers who would go to the Middle East and they would say, where is this great huge city or this empire of Assyria? And no one even remembered it until the 1800s. Mid-1800s, some um, British explorers were, were in what's now Mosul, and they were there, and they were looking across the river and saw these big mounds on the other side of the banks there. And they said, I wonder if something's under that. So they hired some locals to go and to dig it up. And guess what they found? They found Nineveh thousands of years later. It shocked the world. That's how devastated they were. They were brought down. They were brought low. God kept his word. So how do we... Bring some application to this, because that's quite a story. Here we go. First one we understand from this book that teaches us this, that God is sovereign and he's powerful. It doesn't matter the way that the world looks. God is still sovereign. There is no nation on earth. There is no people group on earth. Even humanity itself altogether, we're not as strong as God. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he is very powerful. He, he is able to, to protect us. Right? We can trust him. But then we say, why does he allow us to suffer? Well, God is patient by his love. That's what the scripture says. He is slow in bringing his anger, right? Why? Because he wants all to come to repentance. As important as it is to see what God does in this, it's important what it, it, we see what it doesn't tell us to do. God vindicates his people. God brings vengeance. We don't have to. Nowhere in the book of Nahum, even once, does it tell God's people to pick up a sword. Nowhere once does it say to be wicked or to, to, to fight against these horrible Assyrians. Not even once. God's the one who's going to do it. He doesn't need our help to bring vengeance. That's his job. But he has told us our job, hasn't he? He told us, and Jesus told us this. He says, go to all kinds of people, right? All the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all these commanded. Surely he says he's with us, even in the end of the age. He, he calls us this. He says that we're his ambassadors of peace to this world. But we get to wage peace because we know God owns the war. And we can do it. And God is patient. And as long as he allows us to suffer, it's this. We know this world is brief. And we get to live forever. And this is not what it's about. And if God allows us to suffer, there's purpose. So let us make sure that there's purpose. Let us live for purpose. 
We don't have to live as a vengeful, rageful people of hatred. We can live for a God who is loving and kind and will vindicate us in the end. He is loving. And so we need to represent that. That's what we get to do because that's why he's being patient. That's an important thing. In the meantime, it's hard. I tell you what, you go and you see bad things happen and if you receive persecution or, or difficulties because you are a Christian, sometimes that rage inside of you is like, oh, you want to strike back. Here's what helps us. As we know this, that God's going to vindicate his people. That all the wrongs will be righted. We can trust him with that. It's okay. And we don't have to get so upset when we see evil on the rise, like somehow it's going to overthrow God. God's just fine. He is still sovereign. And he still has given us our mandate. We still have our marching orders. That's to love this world, to spread the gospel, and, and to, to care for those. So, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. So we don't have to be worried by the, by the national news or the world news or get upset when we see evil on the rise. It's not going to overtake God. This world will end. Jesus promised it. He said, just as much as the world ended once in a flood of, of water, it will end again in a flood of fire. So in this brief period of time, until he comes back, let us do our part to make sure that we preach the good news, that we be agents of love and of peace, that we do the work that he called us to do because God will vindicate us. And he will vindicate himself. We can trust him for that. John, or Jesus tells us in John 15, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. He's not asking us to endure anything that he didn't. And John wrote later, 1 John, he writes to his own people. He says this, don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, when the world hates you. (laughs) It shouldn't shock us that life can sometimes be hard for believers. It shouldn't question our faith. It doesn't mean that he's not strong. God has it under control. So we can go and we can love when things are hard. We can trust when things are difficult. That's what we're called to We need to remember Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He truly is close to those who trust in him. Now, as we bring this message to a close, how do we bring this into our own lives? Well, I'd invite you to take out your your connection card right now and turn on to the back side because I have some ideas, some ways that we can can apply some of the truths of this book to our own lives. And you say it's on this section this week I commit to. Maybe the first thing is to uh, memorize Nahum 1.7. We live in times that are not so easy, right? It seems like evil is on the rise and just about everywhere we look. Remember this verse. It's just as true today as it was in Nahum's time. God is just as powerful. He's just as loving and he cares for us just as much. Let us be close to him. He is close to those who trust in him. So be close to him. Memorize this passage. Maybe this. Maybe to read the book of Nahum. It is three chapters. I kid you not. You can read it in like ten minutes. But don't just breeze through it. Let the, 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 let the, the comfort of God's power uh, minister to you this week. Spend some time with him in Nahum. I encourage you to do that. How about this? Maybe you commit to this. Maybe you should pray for the church. Because the church is persecuted, aren't we? We're persecuted all around the world. Uh, in fact... Even in the U.S., I think it's crazy. There was a, a um, YouTube. You ever gone to that, that site? It's funny. And then like, you see all kinds of videos. And then underneath it, there's always comments. It doesn't matter what the video is on. You get there far enough, somebody's going to make an attack against faith, against God. It's going to happen. Right? You'll see a cat video. And eventually, somewhere on there, they say, you know, you know, Christians are stupid. And you're like, what? How did you? But it's just the world we live in. So pray for the church. Uh, pray for the persecuted in China and in Africa, or about those in the Middle East, that they stay strong in their faith and they have testimony and that God uses their suffering for purpose and if there's any way he can spare them from any of it, that he would. 
I pray for those of us in the United States, the church, that we would be strong and bold in our compassion and our love. That we would shine as, as a light in a dark, dark and darkening culture. I pray that we wouldn't lose heart, that we wouldn't become uh, scared away by suffering, that we will stay strong and that we'll love those that are hard to love because that is beyond our capacity in and of ourselves. So pray for the church. Maybe that's what you do this week. How about this? Do the work of love. Jesus said the mark of his disciples are going to be all kinds of cool evidence, right? that we're going we're to have compassion on the weak and the sick and the poor and those that nobody else wants to talk to, that's where we're going to be. And we're going to love people that hate us because that's what the world doesn't do. And we're going to end wars by declaring peace and waging peace. We're going to be on the offensive and not just hold up in a little enclave, but we're going to go into this world and we're going to love the people that are hard to love because God loves them. And maybe that's what you need to do this week and say, what am I doing? Maybe this week there's somebody who is hard for you to love. And you commit to say, you know what, I'm going to find a way. <laughs> Whether it's to start with forgiveness or I go and do something kind for them, that's what I'm going to do. Or maybe when you read the, the news or watch it, it just makes you so mad and so filled with rage. Maybe you turn that into an act of love instead of praying for the destruction of God's enemies, that you pray that they would repent and turn. Even Saul turned. Maybe that's what you do. Whatever it is, maybe you say this week, I'm going to put love into action and trust in God's vengeance. Maybe there's something else I didn't think of, quite likely. I'm not the world's smartest guy, but there is a line there for you. If the Holy Spirit's telling you to do something this week, write it down, because I will pray for you. Or maybe there's a different uh, commitment that you have to make. Make sure you let us know so we can help you with that. Or maybe there's a prayer request that you have. Maybe you need God. And there's some way that you need God in your life and know that we will join you in prayer this week if you ask us to. We would, in fact, love to do that. And God has answered our prayers in amazing ways. So you can write that down. And here in just a minute, we're going to take our, our offering. And as the offering is passed, and you drop your tithes and your offerings into the basket, please drop this one, this uh, card in there too. All right. Well, before we do that, let's pray uh, for our offering and our commitments. Please join me. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are good. That's what makes your vengeance not terrifying, is that you are good. And you do what is right, and you are righteous 100%. And you, God, are measured. You don't just smack us every time we deserve it, but, but out of love you stay your hand, Father, knowing that some will come to repentance. So God, help us be as those who live in your love. Father, let us be a church that yields a knee to your throne and not the, the thrones of this world that seem so strong and powerful. Let us serve you with true and open hearts. Let us be people of peace and not war as we trust in you to bring us that vindication. Father God, I pray for, for this church and the churches of the Estes Valley. Help us to be a light to this community. That the gospel of Jesus Christ will be preached and will be preached not just by the pastors from pulpits but from the actions of our everyday lives. Fill this community with the truth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you came on this earth and you faced your full fist of wrath on our behalf so we wouldn't have to, and that there is still time to turn. God, let us live as a people with that kind of purpose, to go and give us the strength to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. God, and the faith to trust that you're at work. 
And now, Father, we've made commitments, so help us keep them. I pray your Holy Spirit would encourage us and give us the opportunity and the tools and the courage we need to live for you. And Father, I pray for our church as well that you would help us to surround one another with love and with encouragement to to, to live up to the things that you've called us to do. And Father, we also pray for these tithes and these offerings. We thank you that you always provide. Thank you for meeting all of our needs and that we are able to give back to you, even just a portion that you've asked. Now, Lord, give us the wisdom to use these tithes and offerings, to invest them wisely in your kingdom, that your message will go forth in truth and in power in our community and this world. We ask all this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.